You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Sellers, a senior writer here at The Washington Post. Today, we're going to take another step toward explaining America with two of the country's most prominent historians, Professor Carol Anderson and Professor Erica Lee, who are also contributors to a new book called Myth America. Historians take on the biggest legends and lies about our past. Professor Anderson, Professor Lee, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you so Thank much you. for having us. We're delighted to have you. And Professor Anderson, maybe I can start with you and you can give me a little bit of a backdrop to this book, what it's about, how you got involved, and really why it resonates so much, why a book written by a group of historians, albeit distinguished historians, is sitting on the bestseller list. And I think it's because we're seeing the, the incredible effort to scrub away the, treat, the, the teaching of real American history, to, stru- to, to scrub away the kinds of struggles, the aspirations that people have had, and to make it this kind of flattened history, the myth history that um, has the U.S. coming out as wholly, fully formed and perfect. And so therefore, the aspirations of people who are coming to this nation as immigrants, the aspirations of people who have been enslaved and who have fought for their freedom, um, those, those aspirations are just wiped away. And that's not America. So this is a quest to talk about real American history by debunking the kinds of myths that are just coming up, say, out of Florida. So Professor Lee, take this a step further. Those are such powerful statements. Um, isn't there always some myth-making in history? What's the difference between a myth and a new interpretation of historical facts? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, One of the ways in which this book really tries to engage in the public conversation is to address so much of the misinformation and disinformation that has been spreading across our media, uh, in the country in the past few years. And historians are always seeking to better understand, to deepen our understanding of the past, which often includes revision. There are many, many, both Carol and I have many books on on our shelves <laughs> that um, offer interpretations that many of us would uh, and have worked to debunk. Um, so historical revision is part of our practice, is part of the teaching and learning of history. We do this all the time in our classrooms as well. It is based on research. It's based on uh, analysis, critical analysis, and really thinking about the broad range of possibilities and perspectives to then come to a reasoned conclusion. Um, Myths have been built into any nation's history. The United States is not an exception um, on that. And I think one of the differences between simple historical revision, although it's never simplistic, and then a myth is to think about the ways in which these uh, messages have been used to further uh, particular uh, political uh, positions to um, engage in wars over power, to justify um, the taking of indigenous land, um, the denaturalization of of certain groups, the treatment, the systemic racist treatment of certain groups as well. So I think it's a 
it's a distinction that that needs to be made both in terms of um, how we understand and practice history, but also how are those ideas used uh, in the real world as well. So let me come back a little bit to you, Professor Anderson, ask about the use of mythology and the importance of mythology. Um, President Obama used to talk sometimes about America trying to live up to its mythologies to create a more perfect union. Um, are mythologies more important to an invented country like America than they maybe are to some other countries? No, I think, as, as Erica has said, that all these nations have these myths. It's part of the way that you build this kind of sense of, of, of who we are. But the problem we have in the United States is that we use these myths as a way to, to diminish the humanity and the citizenship of large sectors of our population and to then craft policies based on myths so that you get um, who built this nation and you get this language about Europeans came to an empty land and built this nation. And then that provides that kind of narrative about who are the makers and who are the takers, who is deserving and who is undeserving of the resources of this nation. So no, Europeans did not come to an empty land. This land was fully populated with indigenous people. And then you have the who built this, which then wipes away the role of the enslaved Africans. It wipes away the role of, of the Chinese. It wipes away the role of the Hispanics who came. I mean, it wipes away the roles of so many people in this nation. And, and so those myths then create policies that then basically strip the humanity and the citizenship rights from people who deserve to have those rights. Professor Lee, I'd like to pick up on that immediately because you start your essay about immigration with this very powerful reference to a political ad by Governor Pete Wilson of California in his 1994 re-election um, campaign. I want to ask you about it, but let's first just take a look at it and also a listen to it. They keep coming as the resonant term. They keep coming, two million illegal immigrants in California. The federal government won't stop them at the border, yet requires us to pay billions to take care of them. Governor Pete Wilson sent the National Guard to help the Border Patrol, but that's not all. For Californians who work hard, pay taxes, and obey the laws, I'm suing to force the federal government to control the border, and I'm working to deny state services to illegal immigrants. Enough is enough. Governor Pete Wilson. Professor Lee, that just seems to summarize exactly what Professor Anderson was talking about. But maybe you can address this. Why did you choose that particular ad to open your essay? I'm so glad that you were able to share that with all of our viewers because there's there's something about us describing it with words and then there's another impactful way of seeing that message. Mm -hmm. uh, it encapsulates so much of the immigration uh, myth, the they keep coming myth, um, as that uh, narrator um, described it. And as the images help to illustrate it, uh, immigrants are they, they're an invading force. They're coming without invitation. They're simply just coming. They're crossing the freeway. There's no end to them. Um, and even though we can't tell from the grainy black and white footage, we know that the, uh, the commercial, the ad is 
shot at the um, at the freeway along the U.S.-Mexico border. So it's San Diego. So we have already these racial images in our in our mind about them being um, illegal Mexican immigrants. This is not something that was invented by Pete Wilson in 1994. It's really drawing upon a very long-standing myth, misunderstanding, misinformation about immigration in terms of immigrants not being us, being dangerous foreigners, being uninvited to take jobs away, to take over the country, um, and really likening immigration to a hostile invasion or takeover of the country. Professor Addison, follow up on that if you could. How does this, this distinction between us and them play out in the right to vote? Oh, it is bedrock central because in that language of the right to vote, it is so racialized because it's dealing with who is a legitimate American who is a worthy American. And so you get this, this sense of, when you look at the, the pattern of voting rights in the United States, you get the, they're corrupt. Um, African-Americans are corrupt. They're dangerous to democracy. They're a threat to democracy. We have to make sure that we're maintaining the integrity of the ballot box. And the way we maintain the integrity of the ballot box is to remove African-Americans from the, the right to vote but do so under ways that look like it's legitimate to protect the state. And so that language that you're hearing with immigration, they're a threat to, to the sanctity of the United States. You're hearing that same language about the threat of black voters to the sanctity of democracy in the United States. They're corrupt, they're a threat, they're dangerous, they're purchasable. They are, you can buy them, you can buy them with with food and water when they have to stand in long lines to vote. You can buy them by, um, by getting them on buses and, and getting them to, to the polls. You can buy them. And so that thing about not being inherently valued as an American, as an American citizen, it creates this us and them. And you, you heard that in the 2020 election when they talked about those illegals who were voting. If we only count the legal votes, then Donald Trump would be the president. Well, the illegals who voted were overwhelmingly African-American, Latinos, Asian-Americans. Those were the votes that were seen as illegal and, and, and therefore disruptive to American democracy. Professor Lee, um, you're such an expert in immigration. And as an immigrant, one can be in the military, you can pay taxes, but one of the few privileges that come actually with citizenship is the right to vote along with serving on a jury. Tell us what that means in terms of understanding who Americans are and what we think about immigration and uh, the right to vote. One of the fabulous things about this anthology is that um, it brings together so many of us and allows us to share our research and expertise, but then put together in this one volume, we can see all of these connections. So, you know, as Carol was mentioning, the ways in which we have um, used the, the power of the vote to both reward certain citizens and to punish or to exclude and bar other residents of the United States has been so powerful and such a, um, 
important aspect of our history from, from the very founding. So I'm just gonna throw out a very specific date and that is the 1790 Naturalization Act. It is one of the foundations of our history in defining not only um, who can, who has the power to vote, but also who counts as an American. The 1790 Naturalization Act, and I encourage everyone to, to look this up because it's not often taught in our classes. The 1790 Naturalization Act was on the one hand, fairly generous in terms of, of naturalization rights and laws, um, globally speaking. It was generous in that it provided anybody who was free and white uh, the ability to become a naturalized citizen. And um, that was comparative to other countries at the time, generous. However, of course, we see in free and white how it has barred entire populations, communities of both mm -hmm. enslaved and free um, African-Americans as well as indigenous peoples. It would lay the foundation for the debates over whether every you know, succeeding um, group that came to settle into the United States um, counted as white, counted as having the ability to become naturalized citizens or not. And for Asian Americans, um, they were from the very beginning barred that ability to become naturalized citizens for generations, which impacts, of course, not only the immigrant experience, but also delays the ability for entire populations or communities to, to become uh, integrated, but also to gain political power in the United States, which is so important. Before I turn back to Professor Anderson, Professor Lee, just one more question. You raise a figure, a man I associate more with lightning rods and stoves, <laughs> with this they keep coming uh, uh, mantra. Tell us just quickly about that. Benjamin Franklin, of course, one of our founding fathers, is of course known as for many of the great things that he did and the role that he played in the founding of our country. But I do associate him with also inventing the they keep coming immigration myth. Um, and it's always surprising to my students to realize who the quote swarthy aliens um, that he was so concerned about. He talked about these um, these groups of, of foreigners coming, herding together and not assimilating. And then I always ask my students, so who's coming to Pennsylvania in 1755? It's the Germans. It's the German settlers who were coming and also being explicitly invited and recruited to come by William Penn to help settle the colony of, of Pennsylvania. And this is where with this immigration myth, I, I really um, hope readers can understand not only the way in which it has been repeated um, throughout our history, but also how false it is, how we don't recognize how much the United States, our government, our institutions, our, um, our companies and, and colonial projects like William Penn's, how much they actually invited, recruited, lured and incentivized um, foreigners to come to the United States. Professor Anderson, you similarly give great historical context to voter suppression, talking particularly about um, 19th century Mississippi. But can you tell me whether you feel today is different or are we reliving 
what you have observed and documented earlier on in US history? You know, I'm going to say apocryphally, um, um, Mark Twain said, history may not repeat itself, but it sure do yeah. rhyme. And we are in the rhythms right now. We are rhyming. Um, and so part of what Mississippi did in 1890 was to say, oh, we don't want Black folks to vote. But because of the 15th Amendment that says that the state shall not abridge the right to vote on account of race, color or previous condition of servitude, then how do we write a law saying we don't want black folks to vote without writing a law saying we don't want black folks to vote? And Mississippi said, got it. What we're going to use is to use the legacies of slavery and make those legacies of slavery like poverty and illiteracy, the access to the ballot box. And so you get a poll tax and you get a literacy test and you get a Supreme Court that blessed both of those uh, uh, policies on high. And that led to this massive disfranchisement of Black folks that you saw in the South with the poll tax and the literacy test. Now you think about what happened in the U.S. after Shelby County v. Holder, which, whereas the U.S. Supreme Court in 2013 gutted the Voting Rights Act, the pre-clearance provision of the Voting Rights Act. And you had these states implement these policies that on its surface looked race neutral, like voter ID, um, but in fact, they were racially targeted. These state legislatures went through and they looked at by race who had what types of government issued photo IDs and then made the ones that whites had the primary access to the ballot box. In Alabama, for instance, they said you must have a government issued photo ID, but your public housing ID does not count for access to the ballot box. Now, that looks like race neutral, except 71% of those who had public housing IDs in Alabama were African-American. And the NAACP Legal Defense Fund found that for many, it was the only government issued photo ID that they had. And also note that what they used just like Mississippi in 1890 was the language of cleaning up the ballot box ending corruption at the ballot box. We must have election integrity. Except just like in Mississippi in 1890, there wasn't the kind of individual voter fraud that could change an election that we're seeing, that we were seeing back then. Same today, um, from 2000 to 2014, Justin Levitt did a study where he looked at the votes in the United States. There were 1 billion votes cast there were 31 documented cases of voter impersonation fraud, 31 out of 1 billion. That is part of the foundation of the voter fraud language that then the architecture of suppressing the vote that we're seeing with these policies like voter ID, like shutting down polling places to balance the budget. Um, all of those things look race neutral on their face, but they are racially targeted. So what we saw back in 1890 in the rise of Jim Crow, and part of that was because you had African-Americans, more of them being registered to vote than white men. Here you're seeing the changing demographics in America, and it's causing that same sense of threat. And so you're getting these racially targeted, race-neutral laws being, being pushed through these legislatures targeted at African-Americans. Or as the Fourth Circuit said about uh, North Carolina, you have targeted African-Americans with almost surgical precision.
And when we're talking about the changing demographics, I think the idea is that America will be minor, majority minority by 2040, right? And Professor Lee, I'd like to come back to you with that idea and this this uh, mythology or the the conspiracy theories about the great replacement theory, mm -hmm. which is often not spoken about openly, but underlies uh, much of the uh, thinking that uh, has has fostered white supremacy. Tell us how mainstream you think that thinking is and where you see it going. Unfortunately, we've seen it become more and more mainstream. Um, I think one of the important lessons historically to recognize is that it never really went away and to understand how much it powerfully fueled so much of our immigration policy, uh, but so much, um, so many of the ways in which we've understood um, diversity and how it uh, is perceived as a threat to the United States. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, I want to emphasize and to sort of um, um, follow up with Carol's um, description and, and uh, analysis of how history is rhyming, history is also lays a foundation for contemporary policies. It helps to um, further them, it helps to justify them, and we can see no better example of this than in recent immigration policy in both the Trump and the Biden administrations. Um, I think many of us in 2016 were um, surprised at how explicitly uh, xenophobic and, and racist some of the former president's um, campaign um, promises were, and then some of the policies that were um, coming out of the administration early on. Um, but upon reflection, and when we dig deep into this history, we understand that the message that was being shared was not just a repetition, um, but also a normalization of a message that had really been there for so long. Um, and then even with the, the change in administrations, um, our immigration policy really hasn't changed all that much. And we can go back to um, Vice President Kamala Harris's message about immigration policy in 2021, where she, she does not uh, dismantle the immigration they keep coming myth. In fact, she uses it to explicitly say to uh, Central Americans seeking asylum across the U.S.-Mexico border, do not come, do not come. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that not only these historical roots are important to understand, um, uh, the, understand the, and help answer the question of how did we get here, but also to help us recognize that it may not, it, you know, may not be going away anytime soon. A follow-up question for you. I mean, we're living at a moment with um, banned books and other huge controversies that seem to be an attempt sometimes to whitewash U.S. history. Do you see that as a repeat of the past or an echo of the past or a new and uh, more uh, volatile moment in these efforts to uh, make the past work for one political movement or another? Both, and I welcome Carol's perspective on this as well, but um, as many of, of uh, us and our colleagues have demonstrated, we've always debated um, historical education, what counts as, as 
uh, American history in our classrooms. Um, we know that there was a, a great war over history, especially national standards of American history in the 1990s. Um, so in essence, we're repeating um, uh, some of these age-old questions. However, just like um, our colleagues in this anthology have been um, pointing out, one of the ways in which this current war um, is even more challenging and even more threatening is the ways in which it has uh, become politically motivated, um, the ways in which, especially within US history, um, how it is a organized, well-funded um, campaign to reverse at least one or two generations of historical scholarship, which has reflected the diversification of how we understand the past, the diversification of our profession, including um, teachers at all levels of K-12 and um, college and university teaching, and also to reverse and erase um, the historical presence, contributions, um, activism, of so many communities, these are hard won battles that I and so many others have been engaged in for several decades that our school children um, need to understand and know about. We know that for Asian Americans, the rise of anti-Asian hate and racism in the past few years has been coupled with the realization that the erasure and invisibility of Asian Americans in our K-12 classrooms has fueled ignorance and hate. Uh, and so we have to understand the broad ramifications of, of what, might seem, what might seem to be local debates at a school board or local debates of, about schools. These really uh, speak to the heart of, of what counts as American history and who counts as Americans. Well, that brings me, I want to ask you each quickly about uh, elements in the news now. This book is obviously um, giving us history that informs the way we see the news. Um, Professor Anderson, in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis signed last year um, the Stop Woke Act into law, and recently the Department of Education there used that to um, stop the teaching of um, an African-American studies AP course. What's really going on here, given your historical perspective? I think of it about the way that I think about the United Daughters of the Confederacy who worked really hard to change the way that we taught the Civil War and so that the, the roots of the Civil War were understood as not being about slavery and that the South became this really genteel place where the North was just beating up on it. And that was the, the message that came through our textbooks from like the 1890s until the 1960s, 1970s, where you saw the diversification of the, uh, the historical profession. And I see this the same way. It's like, if you can control that history, if you can control that narrative and what people know about the United States and how we got here, then their ability to think critically about what they're seeing is, is therefore conscribed by that history. That's what this is about. It, you're seeing it as, as a backlash to a 50-state uprising about the killing of George Floyd. You're seeing it as a backlash to the way that young folk are much more liberal and much more embracing of tolerance and diversity than their, 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 their forebears. 
And so you're seeing this as a way of trying to curtail that, trying to undercut it, trying to undercut a vision of the United States as multiracial, multi-ethnic, multi-religious, multilingual, that kind of democracy. You're seeing this as a way to really say a real American is a white American and a certain white American. That's what this history is about. Professor Lee, let me ask you about Monterey Park and what happened over the weekend with the shooting of 10 mm -hmm. people. We don't know the motive of the uh, killer in that incident yet. But talk to me a little bit about uh, what it means in the context of understanding immigrant communities, how people live and how we report on and understand the impact of an event like that. This is um, just coming at such a heartbreaking time in the Asian American community. Of course, it's uh, the beginning of the Lunar New Year festivities, but also for the past three years or so, um, it has been an increasingly fearful time for all Asian Americans, especially women, the elderly, and the young, um, as we've witnessed a tragic surge, rise in anti-Asian racism, um, harassment, um, and violence. There have been over 11,500 reported incidents to groups like Stop AAPI Hate. It is affecting um, all communities um, across, across uh, demographics and across the United States. The details about what's happened in Monterey Park are, are still um, uh, becoming disclosed by, by authorities. Uh, the suspected uh, shooter um, was identified as an Asian man. But I would urge um, us all to think about the ways in which um, racism and uh, racist attacks um, are can happen um, across communities, even if the 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 uh, perpetrator is of the same ethnic group. This was targeted in a community um, during a specific celebration, an Asian American majority community, and it is it has to be seen as part of this uh, horrific rise in anti-Asian violence not just in the past three years during the pandemic, but also part of our, our longer history. We are just about out of time, but I want to ask you both um, a, a final question with a basically one sentence answer. You've both documented how there are precedents for these, the turmoil that we're going through now in the areas you're experts in. How optimistic are you looking ahead that this will be a moment that will fold into American history and we'll move on from, or are we at a breaking point, as I said, Big question, but please give a short answer. I think that with the organizing that we have, with the awareness that we have, that as long as people keep organizing, keep voting, keep mobilizing, we will work through this. And I'd have to say that I gain inspiration from our teachers as well as, as our students. Um, as tired as everyone uh, is, uh, our teachers are, are fighting back. They're finding creative solutions in partnership with, with um, parents and, and students. And our students themselves are demanding change. They are demanding um, education and curriculum that reflects their experiences, that encompasses the, the breadth and depth. It's a complicated and it's not always positive, but the breadth and depth of American history because they understand what is at stake, not only for today, but also for their futures. 
I'm going to take away from this. We will work through this with inspiration from our teachers, joining your two messages together. Professor Anderson, Professor Lee, thank you so much for joining Washington Post Live. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.